Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Like I remember talking to my younger brother, who's the most wonderful human being on earth. And he, a few years back, confided in me that he didn't think that this whole like uh, sexism thing was super real mm-hmm. until he actually saw something firsthand, right? And I mean, people of color tell us that all the time, of right? Of like, right. oh, you know, like, what would it take for more people to have more experience that then you can transfer to like, oh, maybe all the people who've been telling me about the experience were actually right and actually have that sink in and level deeper. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my spectacled co-host, Rodney (laughs) Evans. Hello, everyone. We are also joined today by Ted Rao, the operational leader of Sociocracy for All, the author of Many Voices, One Song, and the new book, Who Decides Who Decides. We are big fans. Ted, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. On today's episode, we're going to talk about sociocracy, decision-making, probably a bunch of other stuff as well. But before we get into all that, we will do the old check-in thing. We'll do the old check-in thing. It's not, It never gets old, though. You know what no. I'm saying? Never yeah, gets old. It's aged, but it's aging well. Like a fine wine. Uh, so we will begin this episode like all the others to get present, get connected. And as our listeners know, our interviewees participate with us. So <laughs> the question I have chosen for today, because I've been pondering this now that I I am fully vaccinated, I'm calling it being street legal, is this one. What is one habit that you've developed during this pandemic that you are hoping to hang on to? Hmm. So Aaron, if you're ready, I'll start with you and then we'll go to Ted and then I will finish it off. I have been, well, two things. I think being at home more with my family is a good thing. And so even if I can return to an office environment here, I'll probably make it closer to home and probably use it less often. Mm -hmm. And then the other one is I've actually been getting up and working out in the morning, which I never did before because it just wasn't practical because I don't like to wake up. And so that, that may stick as well. Nice. Ted, what about you? I have something along the line, along those lines, actually, and that is that, like so many people, just being stuck at my desk was um, not healthy for me. So I got a little thing that I could prop up my uh, computer and have like a standing desk. And only during the pandemic, I actually used that and started to use it. But I love it. I absolutely love also what just what it feels like to be standing. It's a whole different different thing. So very nice. Sticking to that. Awesome. Awesome. For me, this is a little bit more squishy, but 
I have found that during the pandemic and particularly in 2021 during my Wednesdays off experiment that is now in its third quarter, I have let myself be a little bit more intuitive in my day. So as someone who loves the feeling of checking things off of a list, um, I've gotten much more skilled at being like, what do I feel like doing right now? And in aggregate, I don't find that I'm actually any less productive. I just spend less time procrastinating or (laughs) feeling shame for not doing things. And instead, I have just learned to trust that because what I feel like doing right now at 10 o'clock in the morning is watching Notting Hill doesn't mean that the rest of my day isn't going to be really productive. So (laughs) I'm going to try to hang on to that because what the pandemic and being home has broken me of is this idea that the way I was doing things necessarily was the most productive way. Mm. And there's an in, there's a more intuitive approach to my work and life that I think works well for me. So uh, just before we move on, when I, I've, I've been pondering this obviously a little bit. And one thing that I would encourage people listening and you know, my friends and loved ones to do is just to take a second. I feel like a lot of us now are kind of like breaking out of the chrysalis because we can Mm. be reconnected and we're like, fuck that time. Let's never do that again. (laughs) And it's like, actually, I think some of us learn some things that are kind of interesting during this period of time that we were forced to be different. So maybe just take five minutes and think about what you might want to carry forward as you journey out of your cave. Nice. Good general change advice anyway. Rock and roll. All right. So with the check-in behind us, I suppose I want to start by asking you, Ted, about sociocracy. Our listeners, most of them are probably familiar with it at a conceptual level. But for those that need a refresher, can you just say a few words about what it is, what it isn't, how you think about it? (laughs) That's a short question. Exactly. Yeah, that'll be uh, the next 45 minutes and then we'll do part two next week. What? Exactly. Well, I mean, the super short version is the practice of putting power into circles. So and then from there into roles, if that's what the circle chooses to do. So the principle of having distributed domains and and nested circles, the practice of using consent as a decision making for certain decisions, and uh, including who, who fills roles. So for example, the role of the facilitator gets chosen by consent by the circle. And the last one, I guess, out of those four would be the connection of two circles that I sometimes refer to as parent-child or super circle, sub-circle. Those two circles will be connected by two people, linking roles that are part of both of the circles so that we can make sure that information flows and no one circle can overpower the other one. Mm-hmm. Nice. And when and how did you first come across this concept? So for me, I guess that's part of um, part of my story. I uh, left my previous career. I was kind of at a crossroads, uh, thinking, okay, I um, could go go back to Germany. I was in the U.S. then for two years for work, and I could go back to my home country and do what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> You, you can see where that's going, right? Yeah. Um, or I could do something completely different and basically use this break that I had anyway to kind of reorient and regroup. And one of the options, it was kind of the, like a whole package on the left and a whole package on the right, right? So, And the package that I chose was stay in the U.S., move into an intentional community, and figure out what to do next. 
And this intentional community, so that's, you have to imagine like a group of 70 people living together, like each in their separate houses, but we have one big community building that we share. That group had just adopted sociocracy. So that's how I got exposed. And I wasn't really thinking about it much, right? That was just what that place was doing. But it really grew on me of like, wow, this is really different. And mostly what what uh, struck me first actually was the meetings here are refreshing and connecting and fun. Like after a meeting, I want to do things with these people. <laughs> that was a completely new concept for me. So that then then I got pulled into that. So that's that was my entry into sociocracy. And lucky for me back then, the person who brought it here, uh, Jerry Koch Gonzalez, who's my colleague and co-founder in sociocracy for all, he was like I was able to tag along, and that's basically it was kind of a like an apprenticeship uh, kind of thing that I did. Awesome. You have deep roots in this, deep lived <laughs> roots. Uh, so you have this nonprofit that you co-founded, Sociocracy for All. Who makes up the quote unquote for all? Ideally, <laughs> who can and should sociocracy be for? Does it begin and end somewhere? How do you think about that? Well, I guess my vision of society is that consent-based decision-making becomes just absolutely normal. Mm-hmm. That's just what we do. And our our approach to that is just to seed it in enough places and very different places, right? It could be workplaces, it could be schools, it could be nonprofits, it could be communities, whatever it might be, so that for people it just becomes the thing to do. And let's say if out of five realms of their life they've encountered a running sociocratically in two, they will be less likely to accept all the hierarchical crap that they expose to in other places. And from there it goes. That's the idea. So sociocracy for all, the intention was to really be rather wide in who we're talking to, which of course has its own challenges. That's Hmm. obvious. But mostly it was to also counter the culture that we found then of sociocracy kind of being a little bit hidden. And so basically it was a counterstatement to that of like, Mm. no, this is not in the hands of the people who are, you know, I don't know, enlightened, but the people, like everybody, like Mm -hmm. everybody should know about this. That was the idea. Nice. You mentioned there an important word, consent, which is a word we talk a lot about on this show. And it may mean a lot of different things to different people. So how do you, from a sociocratic lens, define and use that word? Well, let me give you the sociocratic definition, but I think there is a wider definition that I find important because for most of these things, right, there is kind of the the practical kind of definition thinking of like the framework and and how we think about it in sort of conceptual terms. But then there is also more the mindset and just the way you think about yourself and the world in general. Yeah. So for consent, I guess the way sociocracy defines it is, okay, so there's the the aim or the purpose of your group, of your circle, and that is nested kind of under the organization's purpose and aims. Any proposal that will create harm to that, you will have to object to. I would say it's your responsibility to object to it. And if not, you can just say, sounds great, let's try it out. The mindset to me goes more towards how much do you care about other people's needs? That's one Mm. thing. Mm -hmm. How much are you Mm -hmm. willing to factor in that you might have your own perspective, but whatever you do, even if you do it with best intentions, might not work for somebody else. So that's that kind of goes deeper. Because consent, the way sociocracy defines it, and 
that's totally fair because that's the use case is for kind of the the level like an organization that is formal enough to have written down defined aims but out in the world we don't have that so often right if you go mm-hmm. to the bus stop like the next the person next to you you're sort of a unit but you're not a thing that has defined aims so, but consent still applies so and so when you think about consent what about that conceptually is transformative <laughs> what about that isn't well <laughs> Fair that's, enough. that's why I, I i just find that it's uh, it changes everything doesn't it if we if we assume first of all we assume that everybody's needs matter that changes everything because that's not how people operate you know mm-hmm. they operate more according to well you know their own fault i mean all the all the different many different ways in in which our behavior and the way we think about other people and other people's needs are oppressive so that's a big one it also i think it has a lot of implications that i'm curious about like for example what does it mean for flow of information if something that you do can have negative impact on somebody else mm-hmm. that puts a whole level of attention of oh how will i find out if that happens mm-hmm. and how do i know what i don't know so what what is your own mechanism to being confident about that somebody would have told you or that you would have heard it if it didn't work for them and so on so that's the the whole yeah, the level of implications I'm still unraveling because there's just so much about it. <laughs> How do you think about um, consent and the scale of a group? So one of the things we've been bumping up in the last few years against at the ready is, you know, for a long time, we did a lot of our governance and decision making as as one team, one group. And then suddenly it takes longer and longer and longer. So in your experience, you know, is the distribution of domain and authority kind of a prerequisite? Are there ever situations where you do seek consent from everyone in a larger system? And how do you do that if so? One thing that we play with in sociocracy quite a bit and very explicitly is the difference between being a consenting or like a decision maker with consent rights, basically, mm-hmm. versus being just somebody who gets consulted, right? Just uh, getting feedback from somebody. Right. So I guess, so that's, and that's where the conceptual layer and the mindset layer kind of, I guess, inter I don't know. There's some sort of interference there. So for example, if I'm part of a circle that's making a decision that affects other people and they scream and I, you know, I could say, well, but you're not, a, you don't have consent rights on this one because <laughs> it's in my domain, right? Right. Then you're working by the rule, right? Then you're using consent against other people, mm-hmm. which technically is you have the right to do. Sure. But that's where I go to the mindset of now, if you know that this is definitely not working for other people, you have to at least consider their needs. That mm-hmm. just comes with the power that you've been given. So, yeah, and in terms of group size, in terms of group size, it always depends for me on what kind of decision we're talking about, right? If it's easy, then big groups are okay. If it's hard, I would rather go into a smaller group and have a deeper conversation and then get other people's input more through other through other avenues than having them sit in the room necessarily. So this, I think we need a mix of all kinds of strategies to reach our goal of hearing as, or considering as many needs as possible. Consent alone is not it to me. Yeah, yeah. And one thing I, and tell me if you don't feel like answering this question because it's kind of, you know, a lot of times when we start talking about consent-based decision-making in client groups, 
and then we talk about things like the advice process, people are like, oh, racy. Let's make a racy. <laughs> we have a racy. Do you want to see our racy? Do you get that too, Ted? And what do you say about the nuance <laughs> between the racy, which is usually garbage, and what you're talking about, which is usually not garbage? Yeah, I guess that's where the whole thing turns into like a whole systemic kind of ecosystem thing, right? How do you build an ecosystem in which all those things even make sense? So that's that's where I go with this. Everything it's all out of that stuff. It's not so easy, right? It's not about implementing one tool. That's why right. I, I one thing about that I'm always feeling torn about actually, and that is like how do you hold the balance between well, practices absolutely matter, right? Right. Mm-hmm. You cannot run anything on good intentions and just being a good conscious human being i actually get super suspicious when people even seem to assume that and the other side you can't just go through the motions of anything so and then the other the other tension that i sit with a lot is how many tools does it take to reach a threshold so that it clicks into place Mm. right and sort of self-reinforcing right so because consent like just running something on consent yeah that's sweet but to me that i mean how workable that is that's kind of limited right so then how how much is it consent if you have, let's say, a group of 80 people and the, the, the I guess the level of courage it would take to even object and make the meeting yet longer for 80 other people that you have to look in the eyes later. <laughs> That's like, would you do that? I'm, you know, like, and sure. is it then, is it really, I'm, I'm, I trust you would, <laughs> but that, <laughs> that would, I mean, that just makes it so much harder for yeah. some people yeah, than for course. others. And that's a problem. So everything seems to, yeah, needs to click into place. And that makes the whole thing so hard to talk about because whatever I say, I want to add the footnote and also the other side right. of it, but also this. And I sometimes make the joke when I teach in person, like the first thing I do is I put a poster up and say, these are the three answers you will hear from me. First, depends. Second, both. <laughs> And third, give feedback. Have you given feedback? Mm-hmm. Those are the three things. That's it. That's basically all you hear from me. The rest is commentary. <laughs> that is fantastic. I love that. I absolutely love that. We should make an actual poster of that and, and <laughs> share it with the world. So this all connects, I think, you know, kind of spiritually with your with your new book, Who Decides Who Decides. So what's that all about? Why did you feel like you needed to write that as a follow-up to many voices, one song. What was the itch you were trying to scratch there? Hmm. Well, many voices, one song is really was meant as a manual, as a reference book, right? So it's, it's separated out by the different concepts and the different practices and so on. But one tricky thing about governance, as we all know, is that you need everything at the same time. <laughs> so I was always looking for that way in where you can basically like you deliver or you explain everything once it's needed and not everything at Mm -hmm. once. So I was looking for that through line of where can I start so that everything just follows and like it it forms like this logical chain of, oh, and now you need this and now you need that and now you need this. And that is really what Who Decides Who Decides is. It's putting everything into a logical order, assuming that you are just starting out. So it's really strictly for groups that are starting out and that are small enough to still do things. If you already have a group of 50 people and you don't know what your governance system is, it's not going to work, the process. So that's the basic idea of that. It's sort of more the narrative. And then another thing that I noticed just since publishing Many Voices, One Song, which is already intentionally very, very practical. Mm -hmm. What I noticed is just more of like people need 
blueprints, you know, just mm -hmm. like, okay, like, so what does that look like? What does that look like? What does that sound like? Okay, so here's the agenda for your first meeting. Here's the agenda for your second meeting. Mm -hmm. And now that you've done this, here's number three. And now you see how everything goes together and here's what will probably happen next. And people just appreciate that kind of stuff because that goes also along with what I always think of, you know, in the whole self-organizing world, that's all very sweet kind of everybody making their own system. But if I look at the 99%, you know, I'd rather be blueprinting things and right. give it out to people and say, like, just start with that and then start tailor tailoring it to your needs. But mm -hmm. typically this will do. So I sometimes explain it as we are the IKEA for, for this kind of stuff, right? <laughs> of that. like, just take it, assemble it and use it period yeah. you know anything more fancy you can sure you can do that you can also you know paint it like all great do whatever you do it's yours but here's something to start with that's so great and and for what it's worth i mean as someone who is a big fan and references particularly explainer documentation on your website all the time you all do a fantastic job of that like anybody who has some interest can absolutely look at practices and try them with nothing more than an Allen wrench without a full set of tools, like putting you do not together have to be a carpenter. your Ikea bookshelf. <laughs> so, um, so I like that. I had not thought about that aspect of the Ikea thing that you can even, thank you. I will build that in immediately. Like, yeah, it has to use as few tools as possible. You cannot assume that people have all kinds of stuff at home. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so we, uh, as practitioners, certainly appreciate that about the way that you all approach this work. And and that sort of leads me to this idea or this polarity that's going to, I think, get back to one of your three answers. But there's this, there's this <laughs> trickiness, <laughs> probably, right? There's this trickiness that is, on the one hand, there are ways of moving to self-management out there that are quite dogmatic in nature. And, and my sense of the way that you and your team approach this is not so dogmatic in nature. It is more about a, a blueprint from which one works. And both of those approaches come with challenges and, you know, they've got features and bugs. How do you think about that balance because we know that you know and and I think you tweeted once that starting a self-organizing organism doesn't just happen like we know that this stuff is hard so how do you think about the balance between dogmatic and more comprehensive approaches and things that are more MVP blueprint flexible only an Allen wrench needed yeah I, re I struggle with that one a lot I find myself hitting that wall actually maybe daily that mm -hmm. I think ah, there's that problem again and I Hmm. I guess blueprinting is the best way I know I know how to handle it because blueprints, in a way, you can read them as prescriptive, right? And say, oh, here's my gospel. Now I just have to do this. And you can read them as a recommendation, which is how we mean them, right? Mm -hmm. And then start riffing off from that. I just, I know that there's sometimes, I, I mean, I hear from people that sometimes, you know, people report that they had arguments about how Ted or Jerry meant this and that, you know, mm. and I really get like, get shot, you know, like just like, oh, please do not treat this as gospel. This right. is just something we wrote, you know, so that's, yeah, I, I do not have a perfect answer on that one. I think it is. I mean, it always comes back to, to this idea that in order to play jazz, it can be helpful to play scales. And, you know, the idea that, the blueprint or the structured way or the dogmatic way is forever limiting, I think is incorrect. And yet it's a really helpful place to start. You know, if you've never cooked, use a recipe a couple times and then start 
improvising. And I, I wish more people in our community were open to that and talking about that as, as a way of engaging with the space. Cause it feels like instead we basically have the free for all crowd and the dogma crowd. Um, mm. <laughs> it would be much better if we, we did the alternative. If you all like what you're hearing, please do subscribe to our podcast. Apparently that is the thing that the algorithm cares about the most. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> we love you. So in the midst of that polarity and the tug of war between dogma and and improvisation, there's also an unrecognized aspect of this work in the self-management space, the teal space, sociocracy space, which is the role of difference and equity and inclusion and the history of oppression that is kind of infused in all of our ways of working and even perhaps in some of these ideas and and principles. So do you have thoughts about that given your own experience? Lots of thoughts. So first one, yes, just acknowledging that I miss a lot in all the discussions about shared power and and self-organization and so on. There is Unacknowledged, as you were saying, the the level of, well, we can't just take power structures away <laughs> and assume that people will be fine and everybody will be equal. Like you can't just by decree wipe out a whole level of history and all the pain that comes with it and just pretend it never happens. That mm-hmm. to me is very, very concerning, especially the pretending it never happened because now it's solved. We're all equal. Yay, hmm. problem solved. Yeah, It's all gone. And that just is so, I don't know what to call it. I guess I worry in particular about one dynamic, which is, okay, let's say it's not over for somebody. Let's say somebody has been told many, many times in their life that their voice doesn't matter. Now we take that away. Let's say we actually take it away. Even in the best possible world that a self-organizing, sociocratic or whatever organization does not like the people in that organization do not carry any bias. Let's mm-hmm. let's just pretend it's not true, but let's just pretend. Even then, the person who has been told many times that their voice doesn't matter will not likely show up just like the others. Mm-hmm. But then what happens is, oh, that's basically their problem because now they're free, right? Now we've right. been liberating everybody. So what's their problem now, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> So it can turn into this victim-shaming thing that I really am very worried about, and in particular worried about when it's, yeah, when it's not acknowledged. I guess the the where I go with that is that I always say sociocracy is basically offering you a stage. That doesn't mean automatically that it's easy for everybody to get on that stage. Mm-hmm. You know, like the the rule book now has changed. That's great, but that doesn't mean that the players are all going to be in the similar position about it. So that's that's a big piece. So there's additional work to be done that sociocracy or any governance system probably cannot provide. You still have to do your work on top of that as an organization and as individuals. And I was thinking about that recently. So I was thinking back of one story. For those of you who don't know, I transitioned, gender transitioned over the last four years, I guess. And so I was thinking about my previous career and I was interviewing for a job where I was told, and we all know this is highly illegal, but it did happen. I swear it did happen. And I was interviewing for a job. I was one of the last three ones. The people who applied were a guy without kids, a guy with kids, and me back then, female presenting with kids. Mm -hmm. Guess who got the job? 
And so it was, of course, the guy without guy with kids. No kids. Yeah. Yep. Okay, obviously, that's all obvious. But now let me tell you what my job interview was like. My job interview, so this job would have entailed basically, you know, like family income would have been absolutely secured, not a, not a problem whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But we would have needed to move. So back then, they were basically in the job interview, I think maybe five minutes were about what are you excited about, you know, content-wise about the role, about the job. The rest of the 45 minutes was probably about, what do you think your husband is going to work? And when they told me that I didn't get the job, they were saying, yeah, you know, like everybody was equally qualified. That was all great. But... That, you know, your husband having to find another job, that just seems a little adventurous. Wow. And this could still happen even in a sociocratic organization. Absolutely. There's nothing that saves us from that. You know, just because the hiring committee makes a decision by consent doesn't mean that that's not the outcome that we're going to see. So it would be absolutely ridiculously oblivious to assume that all our problems will be solved. They will not. Yeah. So I just want more people to talk about that, be aware of that, and, and not walk around like we've just solved everything, because I don't think we did. Yeah. I mean, first of all, thank you for sharing that story, which is mm-hmm. deeply a, a deep bummer, of course, and, and, and brings up for me actually a conversation I was having with a colleague this morning, which is in traditional systems, that kind of paternalism and power dynamic is so expected. And then sometimes we shift to, you know, I mean, it's, it's incredibly problematic and disappointing, but most of us are not unfamiliar with those kinds of interactions and stories and interviews and promotions and lots of other places. But there's this thing that happens in self-management and self-organization where the pretense of equality and the pretense of us all being in some way the same is also deeply problematic. And in in some ways, I don't want to say more so, but differently so, because that false equivalency, I believe, can be weaponized. And I often find the people who are are holding an identity that is less privileged or less powerful in some way feel a bit gaslit because they have yes. someone who has more power or more privilege or more status or more whatever saying, no, 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 no. I'm not the boss. I can't make these decisions <laughs> over you, et cetera. This is not paternalistic. But everything about their lived experience says that that is the dynamic that's going on. Yes. And so it's like, in in some ways, it even adds another level of sense-making and dissonance, I think, for people to be like, well, I'm being told that this isn't true, but I know that it is because of everything around me. <laughs> yes. I mean, how do you, you know, I, I'm, I'm assuming that, that that sounds familiar to you and sort of how are you, how are you wrestling with that in your own work? Yeah, I guess acknowledgement is the one thing that always comes up for me. I know yeah. said that used that word several times. That's one thing. I mean, that at least takes out the gaslighting element of it, right? right? Yes. The other one is, I guess, here's, it just goes really deep, unfortunately, and I don't have it super prepared. But I guess I sometimes wonder, what are we going to do about people who have not in a single area of their life experienced being on the short end of things? Mm. So because then, like I remember talking to my younger brother, who's the most wonderful human being on earth, and he 
a few years back confided in me that he didn't think that this whole like uh, sexism thing was super real mm -hmm. until he actually saw something firsthand, right? And I mean, people of color tell us that all the time, of right? Of like, right. oh, you know, like just so. What would it take for every, but for more people to have more experience that then you can transfer to like, oh, maybe all the people who've been telling me about the experience were actually right and actually have that sink in and level deeper, right? Because that would be for me a precondition because how do you even explain your reality to somebody who doesn't have a foot in the door to, to having some sense of shared experience on any of it? Mm-hmm. So I wonder about that, and I don't know what to do with it, but I'm sure I'm not the only person wondering about it. But that, I guess, applies even more if you're in spaces where it's the most common experience or, and that's another dynamic that adds a little complication, when people have just decided for themselves, like I see that sometimes in women, they've just decided that they're not oppressed, period. You know, mm. they're just ignoring all the things and they're absolutely not willing to see it even <laughs> because it it would be messing with the narrative of having overcome it. So, yeah, I don't, I have many questions on that. I don't have great ideas or great plans, but that's where I'm with that right now, I guess. That's where the work is. And, and I feel like, at least for my experience, and I think this translates a little bit to the broader, to the broader group that I'm a part of, it, you know, the closer you can get to real experiences and real people, the sooner you can internalize that there's real trauma and real stories and real issues going on in the world, that it's not just your perspective and your life that, that everyone else is, is leading. And that's why, as, that's why these things are so interconnected. So having a more diverse team that then creates these equity challenges is, is a prerequisite for having people that have not had challenges like that to even have the close contact necessary to start to build understanding and empathy and all that. And to your point, there's no easy way out, but it is just the work. And so I think, you know, we, to the best of our ability, have just been trying to like put ourselves in the way of it as much as possible so that we can experience the tension and then figure out what to do about it together. And often, these practices have polarities and trade-offs. And so, you know, maybe doing a meeting one way preferences the extrovert and doing it a different way preferences the introvert. And we need to be more consent-driven, but also just more inclusive in our systems design. I don't know. I, I, I feel everything you're saying and find it to be maybe like the next great challenge after the challenge of just getting everybody else to wake up to these core principles. Yeah. And I, I really resonate with the idea of being able to see these things from both sides, because as a woman who has been in a context that was primarily male led and driven and not just male identifying, like all of the toxic masculine trappings, I, I feel like I have the perspective when I talk to people who hold other identities that I haven't held of knowing what it feels like to be gaslit by a bunch of people who are saying, no, 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 we're equals. And so, and so, Dad, like <laughs> that line of 
of answer was really interesting to me because I'm like, I don't really want anyone to have to experience that firsthand because it was the worst. And also, if I hadn't experienced that, then when I'm talking to colleagues, you know, colleagues of color, colleagues with disabilities, colleagues who are trans, I'm like, I can't identify with your perspective, but I can identify with the perspective of someone who is being othered in a system that says they're not doing that, which is which is in and of itself a place to start from. So, you know, I certainly don't have an answer around that either, but I just think that line of how do you create perspective from someone who has not naturally gained it is a really it's a really interesting one. I guess I want to shift gears slightly and just broaden the aperture to what are the other challenges and stumbling blocks. So that this one we're talking about now is something that that happens over time and that you kind of have to mature to see. But what else, even just getting started, what do you notice teams struggling with when they start this work? <laughs> I want to go almost in a similar direction, but maybe the other, or a similar place, but the other direction maybe. Great, yeah. And that is in writing Who Decides Who Decides. I know I was, you know, I held some pride because I held some pride and sort of like, wow, I think those patterns, they're actually like, this is actually going to work for a lot of people. And it's fairly, fairly sort of foolproof. Mm. That's what I was aiming or striving to do, right? And knowing, I mean, it will never be fully waterproof, but whatever. And then I knew also at the other hand that the biggest error will come from people, right? Mm-hmm. People having their own stuff. So it turned into a little bit of a joke between between me and some of the people around me that I would say, you know, but what about the people? What are we going to do about people? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, people that, of course. Dang, I have the system down, but what about people? Clients would be so great if, they, if no one worked there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That effect of, oh, gee, you know, like, and here's another interesting thing. I'm going to give it a little bit uh, a little bit of a spin because I've noticed the following in sociocratic processes, what I notice quite a bit, or just let's say consent in general, but also the way how we generate proposals in the first place and so on, it's all rather painless and fast. And sometimes I notice that people have a hard time catching up to that, you know, mm. like just recently we were actually in a circle that is called content production circle within sociocracy for all. And we decided that it was finally time to hold the domain of all of our ISBNs, like our, our intellectual property that is in books mm-hmm. to put that into a proper circle. So basically we formed a publishing house right then and there within maybe 17 minutes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. And then I noticed, like, I don't have any objection, but I also think we were too fast because we're human beings. That was just faster than you can take in the reality that you just created. Right. So basically what we did was we said, okay, the decision is made. We're going to act on it. But next next time, in two weeks, we're going to come back to the decision, just sit with it one more time, not to change it, but to arrive there mentally. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I noticed that, yeah, people are kind of the the weak link. And I mean that in the most compassionate and nice way, really. I think just that systems like consent and so on make it almost so easy in many ways to make a decision that that then people throw in their monkey wrenches just to slow it down to arrive there. (laughs) So that's, I don't, yeah, I guess I do know what to do with that, but it requires some skill and awareness around it, right? And I doubt that that will be so widespread so that's that's funny like for example sometimes when you define the aim of something right people want to go into three-month explorations around it even Mm -hmm. though you could write it down in three and a half minutes right so what do you do with the people who want to discuss it and discuss it and discuss it who obviously somehow there's something they still need right and what is it and i 
I don't know what it would be except for arriving there mentally. Yeah. Yeah. And and that brings up a couple of things for me. I was just reading an interview this morning with a client that one of our teammates is doing just about, you know, what their experience has been in changing some of the ways that they work. And this particular client who I've never met seems to just be very reflective. And she was talking about using a certain meeting structure. And she was saying that a lot of her initial discomfort just came from the comparison to something that she had believed was right for decades and that it was very difficult to cultivate the flexibility to notice something better without contrasting it, just to like look at the thing for the thing because Mm. of all of this other stuff that creeps up for us in terms of how we've done things. And so what I hear in, in what you're saying, Ted, is is sort of the opposite of that. Like, but but it's an interesting polarity, right? It's like we get stuck because we do something that feels great and disruptive and new. And we're like, more of that all day, please. And that has shadow. And then we also get ourselves stuck by slowing things down because we're like, this feels so different, it must be wrong. And so trying to find the balance between those two things so we don't stop progress, but we're also not just steamrolling. I I feel like is one of the more nuanced aspects of trying to do this work in systems, at least at least for me. Um, I, I guess one thing I want to say about that that I guess connects both of our points, Rodney, is just awareness of being conscious and aware of pace, mm-hmm. and that you are in choice about your own pace. Mm. But that gets really abstract, right? I mean, people are still trying to sort of learn the tools, right? Many of them, and then it's like, well, and how now I'm supposed to be in choice about how how where I turn the dial basically and how fast do we go because there's a lot of choice in that for example now in my world in sociocratic world there's just like I always say you know you can fly in your like duct tape plane you can fly as fast as you want until you start losing pieces uh-huh. that's one way of using sociocracy <laughs> the other like it's a super super lean just go 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 everything is allowed until it's not Kind of, that's one way of doing it. The other way of doing it is like, you know, define your roles before you lift your finger, kind of. You see where I am mm-hmm. because I was being cynical about that one. Yeah. But that's, I mean, both of them are accurate ways of doing it. So it depends a little bit on where do you put yourself and how much do you question, how much, how, yeah, you know, how fast do you want to go and how much do you want, how deep do you want to go before you do something and so on. And most people have a narrow range of what the typical behavior is like that's how you how that's how they do it mm-hmm. and i just wish we all had a little bit more of a range of here yeah, i'm choosing to go quick and dirty mm-hmm. here i'm going here i'm choosing to go thorough and deep yes. and everything in between that would be great but that's that's hard i struggle with that quite a bit myself so a hundred percent because the having the consciousness that we have options is one of the big gaps that I see in the world of work, period, which is just like, there's such an inheritance of how we do things, the pace at which we do them, the urgency, the the hustle culture, you know, the the budgeting, like it all just comes from this place of like platonic ideal. And then to come back into a system like sociocracy or or any other consent driven approach, people tend to bring the same ideology, like, all right, well, now we if it's safe to try, it's safe to try. And we just have to, we go as fast as we go and there's no modulation. I really like what you've been kind of chipping away at throughout the episode, which is there's still this human factors component to it, which is, but how do we feel about that? 
And how are we showing up within that consent system? And what is like what's going on in the meta layer above and around the rules of the game? Because you can fix those, but you may need to then modulate for the human experience to work. And and I think that's yeah, I just think that's a really elegant idea, but also super hard, super varsity compared to just the basic, you know, blueprint work that needs to happen first. So I have some I have some heart for that, but I'm I'm skeptical about our ability to get there as fast as I'd like us to. So I guess as a place to maybe draw things to a close, I am curious, where do you see excitement and movement around sociocracy being adopted and implemented that might be outside of traditional business or enterprise or in pockets or places, either geographically or culturally, where you just feel like the for all part of your mission is starting to materialize? Oh, in so many different places. Like I have a few, you know, we, we sort of look at the at the world in sectors. Uh, that's like one frame that mm-hmm. helps us look at what we do. One that I'm very excited, but not very involved on, honestly, but very excited about is sociocracy with children. <laughs> just like, just Where imagine, it all started you know, in a way. It's exactly, exactly. That's also going back to the roots, right? For those who don't know, right? Uh, Gerard Entenberg, who started writing down the sociocratic circle method, went to a Quaker school as a kid. And to me, that's actually not a coincidence. Like that's, I, I mean, I'm sure it is a coincidence in some way, but it's, it, there is something to learn there about, wow, you have to, in order to make the jump in inventing something or putting something together like that, there must have been a foundation rather yes. early in life to even be able to go there, right? Mm-hmm. To have the belief that such a thing would it be even possible. So why are we not putting it into schools across <laughs> the board, right? Of like, come on. So, but anyway, sociocracy for children, that also means um, having all the, all the conversations about, okay, what does sociocracy have to look like so that eight-year-olds can do it? Because a one and a half hour meeting is probably not it. Mm-hmm. So what can we change? What is negotiable? What could be shortened? What could be sort of reduced? But I doubt that there's a lot. But, it, you know, there's, there's good people thinking about that and writing about it. I'm excited about that. Um, what else am I excited about? The other one is, I guess, on the other end of things more paying attention to the interfaces of governance and for example the legal system the economic system like all the all the things that make it hard to be self-organized because you do not have choice right for example around the legal system and also money gets in the way a lot too in terms of choice so Mm -hmm. that's those are kind of the frontiers that i'm curious about ownership of course and all of that like how realistic is it even to have a privately owned company that is based on shared power like what does that even mean it's actually (laughs) it's actually a really weird concept that i don't have all that much trust in so that's that's an interesting one so those are all like basically the beginning and the end of the whole journey kind of the outer and the inner edges of things so that's what i'm curious about that's awesome i think the outer and the inner edges is a pretty good place to draw things to a close and maybe we'll uh have you back soon so we can go a little deeper since there's so much to cover here. Um, Ted, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work and your books in the world? Well, it's all under sociocracyforall.org. Uh, that's where people can find me. And that's where you can find the books. I think the most active is also in writing there. So I try to keep things together there. There's a little bit of stuff on Medium through me. But yeah, those are the good places. 
amazing. So go check out that site、mm-hmm. and go get yourself some blueprints, y'all. Ted,、mm-hmm. thank you so much for joining us today. This was so, so much fun for us. Sweet. Thank you so much. A quick tip of the hat, as always, to Taylor Marvin for making the three of us sound good today. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something.